Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The podcast offers these candid conversations um, and the surprising truths of of these anonymous people about sexlessness, about loss, about infidelity, about infertility, about unemployment, about early onset of diseases and illnesses that should not afflict us nearly that early. And I wanted to offer the opportunity, when you listen, you actually realize that listening in on others puts you in front of your own mirror. Esther Perel's podcast, Where Do We Begin?, seems impossible to make. Get real couples to allow their therapy sessions to be recorded. In this episode, Esther divulges her methods, and she explains the benefit of the process to her couples and her listeners. I'm Sarah Gonzalez, and this is Work It! The Podcast, a compilation of some of the best moments from the live event. Hi. So, let me ask you something. Can I get a little bit more light in the theater, please? So I can see you? Is that possible? Yes. Okay, tell me something. Um, How many of you are currently in a relationship? And how many of you would like to be in a relationship? And how many of you would like to be out of the relationship that you're in, at least on occasion? (laughs) A moment of honesty. You see, we all live in relationships, at home, at work, in the family, with our friends. We live in a network of relationships. And I have dedicated my life and my career to helping people thrive in their relationship, experience a sense of aliveness and vitality, because I believe that ultimately it is the quality of our relationships that determines the quality of our lives. I'm a couples therapist, and because I see the changes out there, they enter directly into my office. I still have an active practice as a clinician that has not changed. Friendship hasn't changed too much in the last 200 years. Relationships between siblings haven't changed too much. There's only one relational unit that has undergone an extreme makeover, and it's called the couple. The couple that today experiences more pressure and has more expectations piled up and has more of a need to prove itself that it can be happy than any other unit. And yet, these couples today also often live rather isolated. Nobody knows what's really going on in the backstage of a couple. If you lived in the village in the past, you probably could hear every argument they were having because the walls were porous and the windows were often open. But today, Your close friends can actually come to you and tell you that they're breaking up or divorcing and you're surprised because you didn't see it coming. And on top of it, if they're curating their beautiful, happy, fantastical lives on social, then 
you, don't, you know even less what goes on. And so part of what I wanted was to create a space where we can actually have honest, open, enlightened, and entertaining conversations about what really goes on in the lives of couples. And I wanted a conversation that is truthful, rather than the posturing that we sometimes get involved in. I was asked by um, June Cohen from TED first, and then with Audible, to see if we could do a talk, a podcast, that would actually be similar to the consulting work that I had done for The Affair, for the Showtime series. He said, she said, two versions of the same thing in one relationship. But that's not exactly the way couples actually operate. It's not what one person says and what the other person says. It's actually what one person says that then sets the other person to say what they're going to say, which they didn't even mean to say in the first place, but felt set up to say, which then makes the first one do the exact opposite of what they had in mind too. And every single one of them actually creates the script of the other, which may be very far from the script they actually came with on their own. And then I said, okay, let's watch a couple session. Let's see what happens. And let's see how we can actually bring the couple back from the kind of loneliness, isolation, and often secrecy in which they live and make these conversations come back to the center of the village, to the center of the square, where they used to be. So I want to play for you the prologue of Where Should We Begin? which I produced in the last year, together with Jesse Baker and my whole team, Lindsay Rutovsky and Eva Volkover, who are also here with me. And at the same time, I was writing my new book, The State of Affairs. They're both coming out next week, one on iTunes and one <laughs> on Amazon, <laughs> in bookstores. Um, can we play the prologue? When you pick a partner, you pick a story. And often, you will be recruited for a play that you didn't audition for. I, I told her I didn't know it was going to be like this, that once we had a child that I would be, like, downgraded. Because it's now, like, all about the kids. What's it like to be someone's disappointment for 20-something years? It's hard. Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel is an Audible original series bringing you into the office of the iconic relationship therapist as she counsels real couples on modern love. You can both tell me all kinds of things, and I can listen to each of you. I'm married to none of you, so it's very easy. But you need to reach each other. These 10 anonymous couples have chosen to share their most intimate and unscripted conversations. I was going to the bathroom, and I was burying my face in a towel and biting it and howling and crying, frustrated. Esther helps each couple put words to things they felt but didn't quite know how to say. Sometimes I treat you poorly because I see him as an extension of... Him, him is not here, you are here. Because I see you as an extension of me. Mm -hmm. Together we're going to aim for a different conversation, a different exchange. Okay. How do I do that? <laughs> I will try to help you. So, 
where should we begin? So where I wanted to begin was to open the door to my office, which is a place where most nobody ever enters. That is not supposedly the patient at the moment. And to offer people a closer look about the myriad of things that can throw a relationship into a crisis and allow you, the listener, to tune in one time, in one-time sessions that are three hours long that then are edited into 30, 40-minute episodes. They're unscripted, so the, neither is the tracking. The voiceover is spontaneously done. Um, and it is a session like any other that actually takes place into my office. So the podcast offers these candid conversations um, and the surprising truths of, an, of these anonymous people about sexlessness, about loss, about infidelity, about infertility, about unemployment, about early onset of diseases and illnesses that should not afflict us nearly that early. And because I'm in New York City, I wanted us to be able to listen to people that are not from the city, people that cover the whole tapestry of American life, from all classes, from all orientations, from all accents. I have one too, and so that makes a few of us sometimes in the room. And I wanted to offer the opportunity, when you listen, to actually hear the conversations of others lend you the vocabulary that you may need for the conversations that you may want to have. When you are part of universal stories, you actually realize that listening in on others puts you in front of your own mirror. But in order for that to become so seamless, I had to have a certain understanding of what has happened to the couple. What has happened to love, lust, and commitment in that very short amount of time? And I just want to take you on a tiny little history tour because it supports everything. You know, there wasn't too long ago that there was no couples therapy. This is a very new profession. It's very new that the survival of the family depends primarily, when there are two adult parents, on the quality of the, of the emotional um, connection between the two people. Never have a family life dependent on the happiness of the couple. That was kind of irrelevant. So for a long time, we lived in tiny villages. And in those villages, we were taken care of in the sense that we knew who we were, we know where we belonged, and we know what was expected of us. We had very little uncertainty and also very little freedom. And when we married, that was it. We chose between two people. We hoped we chose the better one. And if it didn't work, and if you were miserable, you could always console yourself with an early death. <laughs> there was no exit. You know, we used to marry and we had sex for the first time. We used to marry and there was no exit. And we used to marry and never have known what sex was before we married most of the people. That was the story. And then we arrive to the cities, and we have the rise of romanticism, and the urbanization, and the rise of individualism. And for the first time, we are a lot more free, but also a lot more alone. And now, my relationship 
starts to take on a whole new meaning. I still want what I wanted from traditional marriage or committed relationship. I want economic support, I want family life, I want social respectability, and I want companionship. But now, I also want you to be my best friend, and my trusted confidant, and my passionate lover, and my intellectual equal, and the one who is going to inspire me in my career, and the one who is going to reflect back on me my better self, and we're going to do this for 60 years on end. <laughs> Basically, the model that we came up with is a model in which we are asking one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide. It's the one person for everything model. And now, a few other changes start to take place. We bring love to marriage, and for the first time, marriage becomes the antidote for lives of increasing isolation. And intimacy is no longer just we live together and we weather the storms and we take care of the children and the cows and the land. No, intimacy now is into me see. And into me see is that I am going to open myself up to you. I'm going to share with you my most prized assets. And that's not my herds or my diary, that's my feelings, my aspirations, my worries, my thoughts, my dreams. And when I talk to you, please don't sit on your phone there and tick away. Pay attention to me. Notice what I'm saying. Reflect back on me. Validate me. Into me see. Modern love. And then we brought sex to marriage. And when we brought sex to marriage, some major things began to happen, especially for women. For the first time, maybe, thanks to contraception, first and foremost, and thanks to the women's movement and to the gay movement, we are able to separate sexuality from reproduction, and we are able to separate sexuality from an economic asset and a woman's marital duty to sexuality that is for connection and for pleasure. And now sex is no longer just part of what you do, it becomes part of who you are. It becomes a part of our identity, a part of the sense of self-definition, a part of my life choice. It is socialized, it is no longer just biology, and it becomes rooted in desire. The desire meaning to own the wanting. And I want to be wanted, and I want to want you, and I don't just want to do it if I don't want to, and hopefully we want each other, and maybe at the same time. <laughs> Lots of things have to come together. 35 years ago, when I began working in the practice and in my training, there were very few people that came to therapy because they were sexless. And even less who came to therapy because they had discrepant sexual desires and certainly not because there was infidelities, and certainly not when it was the man's infidelity, because that was called being a man. That wasn't a problem in a marriage. So this notion, how do I keep passion alive? How do I stay connected to my desires? When my partner cheats on me, how do I forgive him or her? When trust is broken, can it be healed? Are all new questions that cover the territory and the landscape of modern love. And so I want to let you hear another couple, which I wanted to call addict versus asshole. But Amazon didn't let me use asshole, so it became the addict. Because it is a story of a man with a hypersexuality and a compulsive sexuality for the entire duration of the 40 years that they've been together. And he's been calling himself a sexual addict. 
And his wife finds great comfort in that because it means that he has an illness, he has a disease, and it wasn't all in his control. And he would rather call himself an asshole because then it means that he could do something about it. So, let's meet them. You, you have to find a way to help me through it. I came to you last night, I hug you, and you... And, and you have to let me say that. But people, you're going to help each other, help each other. You're going to learn that together. So when you get all upset that he has to, he has to, he doesn't know. He doesn't disagree, but he doesn't know. So you tell him what you want. Don't tell him what he has to or what he does wrong. It's that all the time. Tell me what you want. I'm there. I am all in. I am 100% all in. I believe you. I am self-absorbed. I got to get out of that. Do you understand the difference? Yes. So I Not until to... uh, right. 10 minutes ago. So I would like just to hear it. Speak from that place. The 12-step program very clearly says, you're not supposed to say I'm sorry all the time. That your actions are supposed to speak. Just mumbling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, is not. It's waking up in the morning and first thing telling her, what can I do to make your day better? It's putting her before my own self and needs and i demonstrate this every day and it's important it's for me it's beautiful but your wife is more isolated than you okay and she needs not an apology she needs an acknowledgement of her experience yep it's just that you can use the words you want you can use your body When he speaks, he wants to be there for her, but it's more about him. When his body speaks, he's actually there for her. And the moment he holds her, both of them start sobbing and they have crossed the bridge to each other. I can't imagine what you're going through. <laughs> but I'm here for you. She was very, very worried that she would be judged for staying with a husband that had cheated on her for decades on end. They knew each other since they were 15 years old. They had a life together. They had children. They had grandchildren. Some of her own children are not talking to her. They think she has Stockholm Syndrome. She was very scared that she would be caught in what I've come to call in my new book, The New Shame which is no longer to divorce, but it is to choose to stay when they have the option to leave. And so many people actually wrote to her about how courageous she was, about how they've been there too, about how they understood her choice, about how when you decide to go, you have to dismantle an entire life, and there are plenty of other parts of that life that you actually care about, that, ex that are all interconnected. And so, what this podcast began to do was to create a space that is at once 
respectful of privacy, and also encouraging of community. When there was community, we didn't have privacy. Today we have plenty of privacy and we are massively isolated. It's the number one public health problem in America at this moment, loneliness. To be able to actually combine the two, privacy and community, to be able to have a space where people can speak freely without feeling that that is going to ostracize them, to be able to have a place where people can experience belonging and continuity at the same time as they also experience hope and change was what I wanted people to have in the office, but also what I wanted the listener to have when they are sharing these stories with each other. There's another couple that I want to play for you. And for me, they represented one of the most uh, the next step, if you want, in the history of love, lust, and commitment. Um, you know, when we used to say the one and only, it used to mean God. Today, when we say the one and only, it's called our soulmate. And our soulmate is the person that we choose to make our lives with. And this soulmate has kind of created a confusion between the spiritual and the relational. In our little secularized world here, we turn to romantic love to give us the very things that we want years to turn to religion for. Ecstasy, transcendence, meaning, belonging. Those were the things that we sought in the sanctuary of the divine that today we want to experience in our perfect earthly loves. And then when there is infidelity, if you think that you have found the one and only or that you are someone's one and only, it shatters the grand ambition of love and it means you're not. For most of history, infidelity had very little to do with love. Monogamy certainly had very little to do with love. It was an imposition on women in order to know whose kids he needs to feed and who gets the cows when he dies. Today, it's an emotional threat because we have a romantic arrangement. We used to marry and we have sex for the first time, and now we marry and we stop having sex with others. We used to think of monogamy as one person for life, and today monogamy is one person at a time. And people go around comfortably telling you that they are monogamous in all their relationships. And we used to divorce because we were unhappy, and today we divorce because we could be happier. And that pursuit of happiness and, and that feeling that she is entitled to her sexual bliss, that question of what will she do when she lives in an erotic desert with a partner that she's been with for 17 years and that she loves deeply but has known from the first day on there was something missing is the challenge of this woman and this partnership. desire and attraction that has never been there for us and we were part of what was called the evangelical purity culture movement of the late 90s we have changed our views since then we're both spiritual sort of people i guess i tend more toward the atheistic side now but it was really important to us to remain pure until marriage my husband and i didn't kiss until we got engaged and the night that I got engaged, I kissed him. And even though my heart and my head knew I was totally in love with this man, my body was screaming, no, this is not right. We're two survivors.
survivors of childhood sexual abuse who managed to find one another, get married, and then find out that we were sexually mismatched. But not only that, we were sort of, you know, each of us with our own cauldron of sexual confusion and uh, dysfunction. Anytime I try to have sex with them, it, I feel like I'm forcing myself. It feels incestuous. Two years ago, my adult sexuality came bursting out. I ended up realizing that I really loved sex. I just did not love sex with my husband. She would like sex to be much more energetic. I'd like it to come out of a place where I feel safe. I'm not willing to walk away from my marriage. But what I need to know is, can we learn to be attracted to one another? So when I listen to this couple, I am imagining that sex for these two people at this point has become a subject that is so fraught, that is mired in pain, in trauma, and that is very serious. And that from that place, not much change can come. So I'm thinking, how do I guide them to at least one experience where sexuality for them can be experienced with lightness, with fun, with joy? People come in with a story. At the end of the first session, I want them to leave with a different story because a different story is what breeds hope, is what gives them the sense of possibility. You need a new perspective, yeah? So otherwise, it's going to be one more interesting chat, but with no movement. And then you start to feel more hopeless each time. So I want a tiny bit more info, just so I have a sense of what you've done, because I understand I'm not the first person you're speaking with. But I also had this idea that maybe you would do the entire session as two options. One is you change names. And I thought since you, you sing, right? Yeah. You could speak with different accents, but you need to become different people in play. Or I blindfold you or I ask you to close your eyes, basically. And you do the entire session without looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Which one do we? <laughs> you can say no to all the above, of course. Oh, we don't have the continuation. So what happens? I have to tell it to you. <laughs> or you're going to go listen to it. The man, unbeknownst to anybody else, actually had a character that was living inside of him, and his name was Jean-Claude. <laughs> and Jean-Claude had none of the hang-ups, and none of the inhibitions, and none of the sexual abuse, and he was a total French cat. And so he says, but Jean-Claude only speaks French, and I said, that's okay, me too. He says, but she doesn't understand it. I said, that's fine, I, I will translate for her. In fact, if she doesn't understand it, she may finally begin to hear something else. And maybe if she's blindfolded, which she then was for the next three hours, she actually will, uh, will have different senses. And she will actually activate her other senses and create a different story in her head. So the entire session for three hours, he talks to me in terrible French, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but I made sense. And, uh, and, and I decide that they are going to have 
an ex a new experience, an erotic experience. What I mean by erotic is an experience where they feel alive and vibrant and radiant. It has nothing to do with the narrow meaning of sexuality. And, um, and then we reach towards the end of the session, and uh, I said to her, tell me something. Um, she says, it's very hard for me to stay in the role of Jacqueline. She then becomes Jacqueline, and they have a touch exercise. And in this exercise, when he touches her as Jean-Claude, she has a complete different reaction. She thinks he's this confident man who knows to say, I want you, and not who says, I need you, or do you want me, or all these other permutations that often stifle people. And, um, and I say, um, well, if it's difficult for you to stay in the role of Jacqueline because now that he's being the one that you would like him to be, it throws you back into your own hang-ups and your own story. Um, is there a music that Jacqueline likes to listen to? And um, this, well, first I'm going to let you hear it and then we'll talk. And all I feel bubbling up are all these excuses of why I can't be Jacqueline and why it's wrong and why you can't let that out. Okay. Is there music Jacqueline likes? Mm, she loves French music. Edith Piaf. <laughs> Any particular song? Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> Does she sing it? I don't sing it in French, so I don't know it. And as they told me that it was a song by Piaf and it was Non, je ne regrette rien, I knew the song, for one. And so I had my moment of recognition. And then I did something that I never do. I sang. <laughs> non, rien de rien. Non. Je ne regrette rien, ni le mal qu'on m'a fait, ni le bien, tout cela m'est bien égal. It's actually very apt for what you've experienced. Do you know what she's saying? No regrets, right? I regret not the bad, the evil that was done to me. Oh. The pain that was caused to me. <laughs> That's why I'm singing it for you. <laughs> so I figured if I'm going to take therapy, out of the therapy room, it better be an out-of-the-box intervention. Um, not that I do this very often, but um, when I listen to it myself, I have a synesthetic experience. I, and many people have different associations, but unfortunately, therapy is often talk cure, and we forget that the body speaks and that it is our mother tongue for 18 months before we utter our first words. And we forget that singing and music transcends so many obstacles that words can create and erect. And so I wanted us to actually have a listening experience that is diverse and that doesn't just hear words. Sometimes the words open up pathways for understanding and compassion and empathy and, and, and assertiveness. And sometimes the words are actually weapons 
Let's not kid ourselves that when we speak, it is always meant for good. So I went a step further with this exploration of love, lust, commitment, and listening, which was to... Um, I did the audiobook for The State of Affairs that comes out next week, and uh, I read for four days, and then I thought, wow, after I've read this, if I have just gone through anything where I want to understand my life, my relationships, my broken hearts, my ghosting experiences, I would like to hear what does that sound like. And so we took four excerpts of sessions that actually were about the topic of infidelity. And I attached them at the end of the audiobook, so that once you've finished reading the book, now you can go into the office and you can listen to what these conversations really sound like and how do I sound like when I speak with people in real life. Took me six weeks, took us six weeks to get Amazon and HarperCollins to sign this contract, <laughs> but it's done. Um, and that, to me, is a level of listening that, um, that I have, you know, I've always wanted myself to know. What do these conversations sound like? How do other people do it? Is this normal? Am I the only one? And that experience, that communal experience of taking these conversations into the public is where I've gone with the listening experience at this moment. Relationships by the way, have never been more complicated. And the level of expectations that we are bringing are at an all-time high. And so my work is about helping people navigate the challenges and help them develop a sense of strength, resilience into thriving relationships. I can't do it alone, and neither can people do it alone. And the listening experience when you are listened to at the deepest level, you are not alone. Thank you. So, thank you. We have time to talk together, if we can put some more light in the theater. And then, let's talk. Let's talk, let's listen, let's disagree. Let's do all kinds of things that people need to do more of. Yeah? Okay. And you may need to stand up a second and get some energy in your bodies because this is the worst time of the day. This is espresso time. This is not... <laughs> okay. There are mics right here somewhere so that you can, uh, you can come and ask. Are you coming to me? Yes. Good. Hi, my name is Lauren. I have a show called Inflection Point about how women rise up. Um, I'm really curious about how you recorded these conversations because the mic can be so intimidating and mm -hmm. how you set up the room so that it felt like you could have these intimate discussions without intimidating okay. the people in the room. So first of all, I think what's important to, for you maybe to know is that um, I am used to taping sessions. Just that I do it with a rinky-dinky camera that stands somewhere without mics and I get the permission and I use it often for teaching and for training. So this is not completely new to me. And I've actually often done it with video. When I wrote the book, I audio recorded many, many sessions, but it's just my phone literally sitting on the table. 
What happens here is that um, people arrive, I meet them in my waiting room like I meet anybody else. It's in my office um, in New York. For many of them, it's the first time that they're ever in New York City. Um, and when you come in, we greet them, and then there are three mics like this. I don't even know the names of these things, but they're like that. They're sitting, two at a couch and one next to me, and then we get a little lavalier mic in case we get up and we do exercises or we move so that we can capture the sound. And literally, it takes a minute. Nothing for us to be in a session. You forget. The only thing I, on occasion, remind myself is not to call them by their first names. So I sometimes remind myself to say he, she, he, he, she, she, whatever the, 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 the pronoun is, um, because I, I, that is the one thing that we have taken out, is the names. Everything else, that's it. It's exactly the way they talk. Um, and three hours go by, and then at one point I say, you know, we're getting close to the end. And they're like, what? Already? Time flew by. And, um, and this is what happens when, you know, time flies, when you feel alive. Yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Giselle Rigatau. First of yes. all, nice to hear another accent here. Uh, I'm just curious. Um, first of all, this is, seems to me a little bit of a violation of the pa patient-doctor confidentiality mm -hmm. issue. And then, like, why do your patients agree to do this? Okay. And even if you don't use their names, you can totally re recognize their voices, right? So none of these people are my patients. Nobody. These are people who applied for the podcast. So the first time around, we put an ad, for an ad, I, I just posted it on my own Facebook page, and we had about 400 couples. The second time around, which means for season two, when people had already listened to it, we have more than 900 couples. None of these people will ever come see me in my practice. It's two different stories. They know they apply to Audible. Audible screens them. Audible does the intake interview, which is the, the, the conversation that you heard on the phone. Uh, before we enter into the session, I read their application, I read the transcript of the phone conversation, which is about 30-40 minutes with each person alone, so that they know exactly what this is, why they're there, what we plan to do with it, etc. And then I meet them in my office the day that they arrive. Um, I don't mix the metaphors. So I have no ethical concern of breach in that sense. Um, and, and even when they have asked if they can continue work with me, because I see them one time for an extended consultation, like I do many extended consultations, um, I typically will refer them. They write to me after the last, after we meet. Between one or two weeks later, I want to know what happened. I want to make sure if there needs to be a referral that I, I, I help facilitate that. And they tell me what happened to them and, and um, what was useful, what was not, what changed, what didn't. Um, so I have some idea. I answer back and I say, I wish you really all the best. Thank you so much. And that's it. It's a storytelling project. It's not a therapy project. That's very important to even though I use my art and my art is the art of therapy and therapeutic conversations. Thank you. Thank you for Merci. asking. It's very, it's very important. That, and that's why I like the questions, because it's everything I forgot to tell you. <laughs> yes. Actually, they've been Ah, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oop. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Lauren, and um, I was wondering... Um, with Can you hear? Good. Um, with some of the people that we heard, it sounds like they've been struggling with relationship issues for so long that um, I can only imagine that they must have a lot built up around them. So how, how do you get them to be vulnerable enough to do things with you like role-playing exercises and um, like really like singing to you? How, how do you get them to open up like that in, in one session? <laughs> Any good journalist would know that too, right? Um, it's the way I work. You know, um, um, it's not a challenge. It's actually not a challenge. If you skip the bullshit, if you go to the heart of the matter, if you talk real with people, if you're not busy pathologizing and diagnosing when it's not necessary, sometimes it is, and when you hold people accountable, um, you get what you get. This guy, you know, one of the most important parts of the session with him was to help him understand the difference between shame and guilt. Because he felt so bad about himself for what he had done that he was incapable to feel bad for how bad she felt. Which was more self-absorption. It's more about him. Guilt is a relational responsibility. Shame is the flip side of grandiosity. <laughs> Do you understand that? <laughs> Do you? Because that's what I say to him, and I hope he gets it. And then I say to him, your wife, she, it's very nice that you feel so bad, but that's not what she cares about. What she wants to know is, do you have any idea of how bad she feels? And if you listen to the whole episode, I say this about seven or eight times. It doesn't go in the first time. We do another little round, and I come back with the same. Once you know what you're aiming for, it's just about keeping your foot on the pedal and co covering it from angle to angle to angle till it becomes experience. So how do we learn? At first, he may say it because I told him so, because like children, we first learn because we imitate. And then we identify. And then we internalize. So I give him the words, and by the sixth round, he starts to use his own words, and now I know that it's inside of him. Thank you. Yes, we're going to take you too. Hi, um, my name is Kaz, and I'm the host of The Spread, which is a sex-positive podcast right. that comes out of Kenya. Um, my question is... Uh, because there's not so many, from the part of the world that I come from, there's not so many people who are openly talking about sex in relationships, sexuality, and um, such conversations. Do you think they do so here? Seriously, they talk with anybody else except the person they're having sex with. That's true. That's Let's true. Let's not think this is open and the other is it's actually not so. But there's definitely a lot less conversations about sex and sexuality in certain parts of the world. Um, so my um, hope and, and my desire is to be able to change that narrative coming out of Africa. Yes. Um, and my question for you is perhaps what do you suggest in order for me to be better in my path do you oh, suggest great that, I can, that I can or should do? So, um, seriously, I don't think that what is, people are listening to in this podcast, they have heard before either. In the US, sexuality is often either spoken about like smut or like sanctimony. It's either titillation or condemnation. It's very rarely a serious topic of inquiry that goes to the cultural page rather than the, the health or the lifestyle page. 
That's a big difference, actually, with parts of Europe that I'm, that I'm from. I'm from the Flemish part of Belgium, despite the French accent. Um, so I think that what you do is you, you don't take the subject out of its context. You talk about power. You talk about gender. You talk about family life. You talk about the challenge of being a wife, a mother, a daughter, and a woman. You talk about the same challenge for the partners, to, if it's a male partner, to be a father, to be, to be attentive to his, you know, the difference about the way he treats his daughter and the way he treats his wife. And you contextualize the whole thing so that it's not a sex ed class. It's a conversation, you know, sexuality. This is going to be the, the best way for you to understand it. In every society, Sexuality is the lens through which you will look at the most archaic, the most rooted, the more traditional aspects of a culture, and also the place where you will notice the most radical progressive changes in a culture. It's, sex is a lens. It is not a subject on its own. It is a way to actually understand what's going on in that world or in that culture. And what you do is you go derivative. The best metaphor for talking about difficult topics is to play pool. When you play pool and you want one ball to hit the hole, you need to know which is the other one that you need to kick in order for this one to go down. It's never a direct conversation. Thank That's, you so much. Thank you. Yes. Hi, sir. I'm Madison. I'd be curious to learn about some of your learnings from season one that you're excited about incorporating oh, in season two. Fantastic. Whether it's about you, yourself, your journey, your work, or even the podcast and the team yes. as a whole. Yes, yes, Thank yes. you. You know, I knew nothing about podcasts except I'm listening to, I listened to Manoush, I've done Dear Sugar, I've went, I was on This American Life and was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell. I've done a lot of interviews, but I am not from the podcast world, actually. Um, I am, as the lady asked me before, from a world where you never talk about what you do. <laughs> It's the, the opposite side. So it's really audible. I have an incredible team with Jesse and Olivia and Paul Schneider and, um, and Eva Walkover. Um, and then on my own team, you know, we are, it's a village. I don't have a slide that shows you the village, but it is a village, I promise you. Here's the difference. When I did season one, I had no idea what will come out. When I do season two, I have heard season one. When I consulted for the Showtime series The Affair, the first season, I had no idea what these people sounded like. But once I had seen it, I could no longer read it without also hearing it and seeing it at the same time, even though it was on paper. And you cannot go back. There is only one first time. <laughs> always. Always. So, um, what I, what I learned, for example, is that when I tell, when I listen, yeah, after we've done, the, they come with the cut, and then we listen to it together, and then I track. And I track often with why did I do this, and what did I, you know, what, what do I think is really going on here? How do I understand this? And one of the things I really wanted to add was, I have two reactions when I listen to it. Sometimes I'm waiting to see what I'm going to say, because I don't remember what I said. And yes, I said the thing I thought I should say. And I'm like, yes, I did it. And then other times, and I shut the fuck up. Why were you talking? Let the people do their thing, you know? It's like, it's the art of listening for myself, right? And, 
I began to include that in the, in, the, in the tracking. I just say, I wish I had just said something else, or I wish I had waited to see where she's taking this, because it would have gone actually to a completely different place. And the art of therapy is to know when to come in and when to step back, when to insert yourself, and when to trust the process and to let, especially couples therapy, to let the people do it with each other. Um, and so that became a major new piece, is that I actually, you have a voice of me commenting on the couples and you have a voice of me commenting on me. <laughs> That's one of the big shifts. Thank you. Oh, we have the last one. <laughs> oh, sweet. Um, hi, my I'll name is... short. My name is Willow, and I'm just curious what feedback you've gotten from the couples who have been on this show after they've heard it. Um, the, major, the ones that we have heard from and the one that we were most concerned about was the woman in the addict episode um, have been incredible. Um, it's listening to myself. It's, I was, you know what happens. I, that experience, I have a little bit of knowledge about because I participated in a theater project that worked with torture survivors. And I know that people have a different experience where they just come to tell you something, and when they tell you something which now becomes useful for others, it gives a whole new meaning to the experience. And the majority of them are just saying, you know, you heard it well, this was it. Um, and I'm so glad that it can be helpful to other people. The main thing is that, that it is helpful for other people makes me feel like it was not just completely useless and in vain. And that is the transcending meaning of a personal experience that becomes a collective experience, and that's what you get when you listen attentively. Thank you so much, everyone. That's Esther Perel speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and ThirdLove.com. <laughs>